I will do something by and by. Don't care what. Teach, sew, act, write. Anything to help my family. And I'll be rich and famous and happy before I die. See if I won't. These are the words that young Louisa May Alcott, a determined woman who sought to pull her family from poverty in a time when women rarely did such things. Much like her literary counterpart, Joe March, Louisa was a rebel with a fundamental cause, to feed her parents and sisters. The Alcott family struggled most of their lives, and if it weren't for Louisa, they likely would have continued to do so. Born November 29, 1832, to transcendentalist parents Abigail May and Amos Bronson Alcott, Louisa worked from an early age to help the family's ongoing financial crisis. She proved to be a force in the literary world with her novel Little Women, which skyrocketed her fame and cemented her place in classic literature. Many women and some men have fond memories of the first time they read the book, the cozy feelings they felt when escaping in the loving warmth of the March's home. I certainly have those memories. But life for Louisa and her family was much more challenging than the charming novel described. I'm Vanessa K. Eccles, and this is Fabled. The attic is a cold place this time of year, but it doesn't matter to me. It's a place of quiet. It's a place where I can sort my thoughts, jot down my stories, and hope for the future. It's a place that harbors all my dreams. I could live here forever, but my family needs me, which means I need these words. I need these words to be wonderful, to be great, to inspire others, to feed me. Not just me, but my family too. I imagine Lizzie walking up the stairs, bringing me tea to keep my fingers warm. She was always so thoughtful and tender in a way that I never could be. She wouldn't say anything, only leaving the tray on the desk and slipping away before I barely notice. She was always a phantom, still is, as I see her ghost standing on the landing, smiling. As I tidy my pages, I take note of the ink on my fingers and the loss of time. Sunlight has faded almost to darkness, and it's hard to see the words. I light my chamber stick and carry on for a while until I run out of scenes. My thoughts are broken by the silhouette of the old oak out front. Its massive arms stretch above and beyond the yard. In a similar tree at another house, a hollow once held notes to our neighbor and friends. I wonder if I were to put a letter in this oak's hollow, if some mysterious person would find it, read it, and the two of us become intertwined in the magical way people sometimes do. It's a nice story. I hold my manuscript up, as a mother does her child, studying them to be sure they're perfect and wondering what they'll grow to become. 
Will anyone read this story? Will they enjoy it? Will it be the one that makes the difference? Will it become more than bread? Am I capable of writing something that would provide us with bread for longer than a few meals? I love my family, my sisters, but I want more than to be a woman who marries and gives life to tiny beings. I want to breathe life into imaginary ones. Perhaps that's been my struggle all along. I've been birthing fiction instead of fact. Not with this tale, though. No, this one is the story of us. All the pain and glory. Well, not all, but enough. But why would anyone want to read a story about our complicated and strange ways? What makes our world endearing? I can't say, but I pray that all the heartbreak of reliving our story is worthwhile. Sometimes I wonder if being a writer is more of a curse than a blessing. But then I see the tiny handprint on the window, a memory of young May's hopeful expression when she received her first paint set. So much time has passed since then. Time passes way too quickly. I've turned countless stories out to survive, but I never write enough of them to matter. Is it even possible to make a living as a writer? I wonder if all these years I've told away for nothing. I wonder if anyone will ever remember my name. But it isn't really my name I want them to remember. It's just my stories. I have no need for fame, no desire for it. I'm too solitary for such a thing, but there's just something about my stories that I feel need to move into the future, even if I don't move with them. Perhaps this is the curse of the artist. Perhaps our pen, our brush, is not just our power, but they are also our imprisonment, keeping us bound to something that may or may not ever come to fruition. But despite all of this, despite the torture of not knowing if anything I do will ever be successful, I will continue on, because there is no not continuing. Not to create is not to live. And I still have hope. Every new story gives me hope. Every new day is an opportunity for the tide to shift, for the light to shine on something I have written. And with this, I will write this girl's book in hopes that one day it should outlive me. According to the book, Meg, Joe, Beth, Amy, The Story of Little Women and Why It Still Matters by Anne Boyd Rue, growing up, Louisa always wanted to be a writer. She excelled at the skill and her parents encouraged it. She began her writing career with short stories, publishing The Rival Painters in 1852 and The Rival Prima Donnas in 1854. Her first book was also published in 1854, titled Flower Fables, which was a collection of stories about fairies and their beloved flowers. These stories were inspired by tales that Henry David Thoreau, her teacher and renowned author, had told her. She once shared these tales with Ralph Waldo Emerson's children, and with Emerson's encouragement and financial contribution, 
The book was later published. She wrote of the book to her mother, saying, quote, For with so much to cheer me on, I hope to pass in time from fairies and fables to men and realities. Louisa was always surrounded by literary genius. Her father was close friends with Thoreau and later Emerson. Their influence must have been a ray of possibility and inspiration to young Louisa. In 1860, her story, The Modern Cinderella, was published in the Atlantic Monthly. It's considered to be a precursor to Little Women. It was a taste of writing about sisterly relationships that mimic her real-life bonds with her sisters. The story describes the desire to make money from writing to help support her family, a very real desire of Louisa's. She'd already reached great heights in the literary world, but, quote, after pegging away all these years in vain, she wanted more. To be financially stable and independent was still a stretch for the young author. The Atlantic encouraged her to write simple tales so as not to upstage their famous male contributors like Hawthorne, Emerson, and Thoreau. She knew her stories were only purchased as fluff for the publication, but she was writing for money earning about $50 to $75 a story, which is well over the equivalent of $1,000 per story today. That may not sound like a lot, but when you consider that most authors today make less than $3,100 per year on their novels, it doesn't sound that bad either. In April of 1861, Alcott's world would change. All of life in America would shift. With the onset of the Civil War, Alcott began sewing and preparing bandages for soldiers. The next year, the new editor of The Atlantic encouraged her to give up writing, as he was not interested in publishing her work, and gave her $40, the equivalent of over a thousand today, to start a kindergarten. The school didn't last long, though, and she ended up not even making enough to cover its expenses. And Alcott never wanted to do anything but write. She dreamed, quote, for a crust in a garret with freedom and pen. All writers struggle with the desire to make great literature, but the necessity to make money. The two don't always go hand in hand, as one might expect. What authors now dub as writing to market is precisely what Alcott needed to do to provide for herself through writing. So she went where the money was. She began writing for Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper, a publication that specialized in gossip and murder. She submitted her story, Pauline's Passion and Punishment, to the publication and won a $100 prize. The paper published two other stories of hers as well, but she didn't put her name to these stories. They were, after all, meant to merely pay the bills. Her desire to do something great and have an enriching experience took root, and when she was 30 years old, she joined the Union Nursing Corps. For the first six weeks, she assisted in a variety of medical procedures, which included amputation. She then fell ill with typhoid pneumonia, and her father rushed her back home to Concord, Massachusetts. When she recovered months later, she began editing a collection of letters she'd written while nursing. They were published, and the public took note, perhaps for the first time, of Alcott. She realized then the power of authentic true stories and how people longed to know the inside perspective of both war and life. Her newfound fame 
made the editor of The Atlantic second-guess his choices. He then published two of her poems. The world wanted more of Alcott's writing, and the editor knew it. He asked if she had a novel he could look at for his publishing company. Alcott had worked on a novel which she called Moods for years, but all the editors thought it to be too long to publish. It did get published once she shortened it, but she was never happy with making it shorter and seemed to regret ever agreeing to do so. She began working on another novel titled Work, but found herself writing, quote, rubbishy tales again to supplement her income. Those stories were much shorter and a lot easier to write, not to mention that they paid better. Side note. Can I just say, as a novelist and short story writer myself, times haven't changed all that much, with the exception that it seems she was much better paid than the average independent writer of today. She continued writing stories. Thomas Niles approached her about writing a girl's book for the growing boom in children's literature. Louisa was also editing a children's magazine for a nice salary, but her mother's health began to decline and she moved back home to tend to her. While she was there, her father encouraged her to work on the girl's book, which would later become Little Women. The mere thought of writing a girl's book proved difficult for Alcott. She wrote to a friend, quote, I could not write a girl's story, knowing little about any but my own sisters and always preferring boys. But Alcott trudged through and sent Niles the first 12 chapters, which he thought were boring. But when he allowed his niece to read them, she loved them. It turns out that girls were the ideal audience for a girl's book. Surprise, surprise. Little Women was published on September 30, 1868. It sold 2,000 copies in two weeks, a huge success. People wrote to her begging for a sequel, which she and Niles had already discussed. She planned to write a chapter a day and finish the sequel within a month's time. The main issue she had was that, spoiler alert, she didn't want to marry Joe and Laurie which I have to say was the saddest, most wretched decision ever to my young heart when I first read the book. But her publishers insisted that every girl be married off, quote, in a very stupid style, she'd said. Nevertheless, readers loved the girls, and most especially, Joe and Laurie. They loved them so much that the publisher immediately asked for another book, but she knew what it took out of her. She had worked feverishly for 14 hours a day to produce it, and she didn't want to make herself sick trying to do another one so soon. She needed to write to feed her family, so getting sick was not an option. She was becoming so popular that people were showing up at her home unannounced. She had to sneak in and out to avoid the public. The publisher was overwhelmed with the amount of copies ordered. He'd cried, quote, Why, dearest girl? It's the triumph of the century. Alcott's life would never be the same, and her family's financial struggles were finally over. Alcott wrote from her memory. She'd said that she and her sisters really lived most of what was written in Little Women. Perhaps that's why girls everywhere found it so relatable and endearing. Even now, years and years later, their relationships are genuine, and family is a timeless thing. Our struggles our emotional ups and downs, 
the precious memories and traditions that make our family ours. Those are the things that make Little Women such a wonderful, authentic, and classic piece of literature. Even though much of Little Women Alcott drew from actual experiences, she wasn't able to release the fullness of her history within a children's book. Her father's radical thinking, her mother's anger and resentment toward her husband's inability and unwillingness to provide for his family, and their constant battle with poverty would be too much to include in a book that in the end focused on the love and strength of family with a hopeful tone. Another element that wasn't true in Alcott's life is the central home base that's found in Little Women. The Alcotts moved some 30 times before she turned 25. Also, the family didn't always live together. It wasn't uncommon for the girls to spend weeks to months with friends and family in other cities as a way to unburden the family for the need to feed that many mouths. Their hardships made them dependent on the support of Miss Alcott's wealthy family and the support of their kind friend, Emerson, who respected Mr. Alcott's thinking, but also knew of the great need Miss Alcott and the girls had for the basic necessities of life. Bronson Alcott had a strong belief that they all shouldn't partake in any animal or dairy products, and because he was adamantly against slavery, he refused to wear or use cotton. Since the family couldn't wear cotton or wool, they were forced to wear linen even in the cold Massachusetts weather. Given that fresh produce wasn't available year-round in their region, this meant that they were underfed, malnourished, and not adequately clothed for the winter. They lived a terribly difficult life. Louise's father, Bronson, reportedly suffered from manic depression. His brother had committed suicide, so there is some question if mental illness ran in the family. Even Louisa herself at one time admitted having suicidal thoughts. Abigail, Louisa's mother, bore the brunt of the difficulty in raising and feeding the children. Bronson believed that the only way to grow a closer relationship to his creator was to unburden himself from family life, which meant that he lived for seasons of his life away from the family, only returning on the weekends. He had a kind and loving nature by all accounts, but he was full of eccentricities that made him especially difficult to live with. No one knew this better than Abigail. She suffered from anger and bitterness, but she used her journal as an outlet to rid herself of these thoughts. She requested her journals to be burned upon her death. There are lots of interesting aspects that stretch from life to book for Louisa. For example, her sister Lizzie died as Beth did in the book, only it was a much more painful and slow death. And Louisa almost had to cut her hair for money, but didn't, unlike Joe. And May, or Amy in the book, did not marry Laurie. Interestingly, Laurie is a mix of two male friends of Louisa's. One of them is Alfred Whitman, whose mother died and the Alcotts took in as a member of the family. He was nine years younger than Louisa, but the two shared a special bond. She enjoyed sharing her wisdom with him, and the two were longtime friends. The other was a Polish man she met while on a European holiday with her sister. She called him Laddie, and it's clear from her letters that she may have been romantically smitten with him, even though she knew nothing would come of their relationship. Anna, or Meg in the book, did in fact get married and have two sons. 
After her husband's death, she spent the rest of her life caring for those she loved. She tended to her children, May's daughter and Louisa. She died in July of 1893 at the age of 62. As mentioned earlier, Lizzie, or Beth, died young of a fever that progressed and eventually overcame her. She was only 22 years old. May, unlike her literary counterpart Amy, went on to practice painting and didn't marry until she was 37 years old. The couple had a daughter, Lulu, and May died a year later. Their mother, Abigail, died in 1877 at the age of 77. Louisa said, I never wish her back, but a great warmth seems gone out of life. She was so loyal, tender, true. Life was hard for her, and no one knew all that she had to bear but her children. Bronson, the family's patriarch, died at the age of 88. He had continued his educational pursuits until late in his life. Louisa would never marry, and after May's death, she and Anna helped care for Lulu, who was named after Louisa. Louisa suffered with a variety of health problems near the end. She had vertigo, which is believed to have been the after-effects of mercury poisoning. She had typhoid fever during her stint in the Civil War, and mercury was used as a medication for it. It's also believed that her poor health could have been because of an autoimmune disease like lupus. Two days after her father's death, she had a stroke and died at the age of 55. I still remember the first time I held little women in my hands. I was young, maybe 10 or 12, and was perusing the library. At the time, I wasn't a novel reader. My dad had me in a monthly book in the mail club, which I loved, but I was ready to move on to novel reading and the wonderful librarian said, I have the perfect book for you. She handed me an old copy of Little Women, and the title alone grabbed my attention. I myself was a little woman, so I knew this book was for me. Authors are often asked what their favorite book is, and I always go back to how Little Women made me feel. I've always been a writer, having written and shared my stories with my parents and family for as long as I can remember. I wanted to be Joe. I was Joe in my mind, the passionate young writer who was more interested in stories than boys. Unlike Joe, I married my Laurie, but her heart and focus on writing are like my own story. And after doing this research, there's even more of myself that I've found in her. Compulsion to make something of our art, the hope to one day be able to provide for our family by sharing stories and the deep love and connection she had with her loved ones and the people closest to her. Still, even now, I want to be Joe when I grow up. Fabled is produced by me, Vanessa K. Eccles, with music by Kevin McLeod and Epidemic Sound. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to pick up Meg, Joe, Beth, Amy, The Story of Little Women and Why It Still Matters by Anne Boyd Rue. It was a phenomenal resource and it's a must-have for every fan of Little Women. Every episode is made possible because of the generosity of my patrons. I'm so grateful for each of you 
Words cannot express how much your kindness means to me. The next episode was scheduled for New Year's Eve, but because of the holiday, I've decided not to drop the next one until January 14th. I want to take this opportunity to thank you for an amazing year. Yeah, this is our one-year anniversary. Fabled has grown more than I could have ever imagined. It's been one of the most rewarding and wonderful endeavors ever. Next year is going to be even better, I believe, for all of us. It'll be a year of focus for me. It is 2020, after all. If there's a specific topic you'd like to hear about, drop me a line, vanessa at fablecollective.com, or message me on social media at Fable Collective. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Wishing you a warm and wonderful Christmas and holiday season, my friend. I'll be seeing you in just a few short weeks, yet a whole new year. So much love from my family to yours. As always, thank you for listening.